Have you ever wondered, looking at somebody maybe that just got out of prison, like how in the world did their life end up there? What kind of crazy mistakes, what kind of messed up stuff were they involved in? I've wondered that myself. I've asked myself that. Things started out really normal. I mean, I don't know how much more June Cleaver or Ward Cleaver we can get here. I mean, I went to Christian schools growing up. I grew up on a little farm, had some brothers and sisters, mom and dad that loved me. Went to church twice on Sunday because, I mean, what's better than one time of Jesus? Two. Had a great childhood. Dad worked a lot. Mom was always involved with church. She was always the worship director wherever we went, so music was a huge part of our family. I played trombone growing up, you know, in the little middle school band and playing wrong notes and for little recitals and this and that. So when I was around 10 or so, I started going out to Illinois to spend the summers with my uncle and aunt. I loved going out there. I loved working on their farm. I loved just being busy and all of the stuff and just, yeah, just being around everybody that was there and the busyness of the markets. I loved going to the markets. I loved being with people. I loved making change. I loved being that little kid who would run to one side of the market and grab something and I'd have something and I'd bring it over and I was just excited and uh, customer service, right? I, I think that's really where my customer service gene came from. Middle school for me was tough. My parents started a Christian school with some other families in a community not, not too far away from our house. And it was a very, very small Christian school. My graduating class was me and my best friend. When I left eighth grade and I went to ninth grade, then I'm reintegrating back in with all of my high school friends. And all of them had been going to school together with each other for the last nine, ten years. And here I come in and I'm kind of the outsider. I'm the kid who doesn't live in town with everybody else. I'm the kid who doesn't have the fancy clothes like everybody else, who doesn't have the fancy car, whose parents don't have a fancy job. I remember thinking all the time, like I just, I gotta do something funny. I gotta do something crazy. I gotta just to try and fit in. And so if you've ever been in that place where you just feel like you don't fit in, I have so been there. High school was tough going into high school. There was a lot of disciplinary things and I was acting out. I just didn't feel like I fit in. So I would try to act out to be accepted by some groups. I could kind of chameleon in and out of different groups. I would be with the band nerds because I was really great at band. And then I would be over smoking pot and maybe doing shots of alcohol or something, you know, during our lunch hour. Like, what is that? But I'm cool in that group, but this group doesn't know about this group. And so you keep everything compartmentalized. I had just a lot of disciplinary issues. A good student, smart, but just never really took any of that seriously and applied it. So here we are in high school they had a point system and I would just get in all this trouble and I just couldn't escape it. And I felt like, felt like the guy who was in charge, his name was Pete. And the guy who was in charge of all of this discipline, like disciplining us, I felt like he had a personal vendetta out for me. 
I felt like I couldn't do anything right in that school. Everywhere I turned, here's Pete waiting to catch me in something. Senior year of high school comes, and I think I had around 20 points, uh, disciplinary points, by around Christmas time. And you need 21 to get expelled. So I had a long school year ahead of me. And I made one little mistake, and sure enough, I got myself kicked out of high school my senior year. Found myself wondering what exactly did I just do and what kind of trouble is the rest of my life in. Drugs can be loud inside of your head while you're trying to deal with some of that. I was smoking a lot of pot, I was drinking, using acid. Luckily, the efforts that I did put in to my schooling, I was able to graduate from South Christian High School with the caveat that I did not show up to graduation. I miss that. I mean, anybody that goes through the toil of high school and the whole journey from freshman to senior and you got all your friends and everything, yeah, I traded that for behavior issues and was not allowed to be a part of that. I just felt a major disconnect at that point with religion, people that called themselves Christians, felt a disconnect with just anything really, with my parents, with my family. I felt like I was this outsider, not doing anything right. I mean, I was adopted when I was a kid. I was adopted when I was six weeks old, eight weeks old. My parents tried to have kids for 10 years and then adopted me. And I don't know even how to describe this, but as an, as an adopted kid, you grow up with this desire to just know your roots, to know where you came from. Who's am I? I mentioned going to the farmer's markets when I was a kid and we would go into Chicago and we would set up these big elaborate displays of vegetables and everything else and, you know, whatever. I saw at that point, like, because my parents were very honest with me about me being adopted. And I had seen my birth certificate. And on my birth certificate, it said Chicago, Illinois. It didn't say the hospital, but it said Chicago, Illinois. And that was enough of a seed in my little brain to think now when I'm 10 and I'm at these farmer's markets and I'm serving people, just wondering, is that my mom that I maybe just bagged some groceries for? I always wondered. You always wonder why? Was I not good enough or? I graduate high school, I get the diploma, and there was just a disconnect with family, religion, Christians, all of it. And I had an opportunity to go to the military. And I thought, what a great opportunity to get out of Dodge, to not have to deal with my family, with all of this stuff going on, and I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna start new. And so I did, I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, went to the military, had to go through basic training just like everybody else. Graduated basic training and I still had a chip on my shoulder. I remember when I got my dog tags, when I first got there and they said, well, what religion would you like to for us to put on these dog tags here for you? And I said, do not put anything on there. I don't wanna be associated with any of it. 
graduating boot camp, a lot of guys just go out and, you know, party, get tattoos, drink, whatever. Getting a tattoo was something that I definitely wanted to do. I had one on my shoulder, but I was like, yeah, you know, I definitely want to go get a tattoo. So we went, I remember we walk into this tattoo shop and I walked in there and I started paging through the pages of these different designs. And I remember I flipped open one of the pages and I see this picture of this devil and he's flipping you off with both hands he's got this little snicker in his eye and he's flipping you off with both hands and he's just got this mean look in him and I said that's what I want to get put right here on my chest and so I did I got the devil flipping you off with both hands put right on my chest because that's how I felt about God that's how I felt about Christians that's how I felt about the church that's how I felt about my school my parents everybody I just that's how I felt about life. I had no idea at that point in my life how much that one decision to get a tattoo on my chest was going to begin to just steer some of the direction in my life. Had kids fairly early on. I had four kids in under five years. A busy family. We had four boys. I loved being a dad to those boys. I don't remember a lot of segments of my life, but I remember coming home from work at times and my kids were maybe four, five years old and we would just wrestle and just have fun and they would jumping off the couches and it would be like a WWE match inside of our you know, just inside of our living room and it would just be a big mess and but we were all there and we were together and we were having fun. Marriage was tough. We were young. We didn't know how to communicate with each other. I'll own as much of that as I can. I wasn't the right person at the right time. And, um, and there was a break and there was divorce. And that divorce was hard on me because I grew up in that Christian home that set that standard. It's not even a written standard so much, but it's a, you know, we don't get divorced. We're married for good here. We work things out. And that wasn't happening in my life. I felt shame. I felt guilty for my part in everything. And in a moment of weakness, I remember like it was yesterday. I remember I was out with a buddy of mine that I sold cars with and we were on our way to a bar and it was one Friday night underneath his seat he pulled out this plate and it had some cocaine on it and he said go ahead and chop up a line and I remember taking that first snort of cocaine and for a minute it feels like everything in your life is better but what happens is everything that wasn't right in your life multiplies and doesn't go away wherever you go there you are you can try to run away from those kind of things in your life but that just kept hounding me and I dealt with that addiction to cocaine which ended up eventually spiraling into crack cocaine one of the most prized possessions that I had leaving high school was my class ring. My parents told me my senior year of high school, they said, 
If you want a nice class ring, you've been earning money, you know, we can't afford to get it for you, but it, if you want to get your class ring, grab it. Do what you want. So I designed it. It was gold, had my sapphire uh, stone on it, had little baseball thing on the side because I love playing baseball, had the band thing on the other side. It was just, it was a gorgeous ring. I remember one night, I was so hard up for some crack that I walked out of my house. I walked down, found somebody on the street, worked out a deal, gave him my ring, and he came back with probably, I don't know, 30 maybe $40 worth of crack. And I went back to my house happy. I went into that house. I went back up to the to the bathroom. I shut the door. I put the crack out on the table. I loaded it in the pipe. And guess what? It was garbage. Absolutely garbage. So now I'm left with, I just traded something that meant and that I worked for and that meant something to me. I just traded it for something that was absolutely worthless. I don't know how to describe the shame that comes with actions like that. It's like the shame of stealing a check out of my parents' checkbook because I wanted to go and run up to the bank real quick because I needed some crack. Like they wouldn't find out. In and out of jail, my first, my first felony was for possession of cocaine. In and out of rehab. And I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't hold on to life. I couldn't make it happen. And I felt like it was this big, insurmountable thing that was never, I was never going to get it right. I was going to go through the motions. I was going to play along for a while. And maybe all that would be good, but I was never going to be a player in the game of life. I was... And this whole time, I'm still pushing pushing against God. I'm not going to church. Got married again, divorced again. I end up leaving Michigan because I thought I don't want anybody to anybody that knows me. I don't want them to see me sinning. So the best place for me to go is just leave all of this behind and go to Las Vegas. It's transient. A lot of people in and out of there. I can fly under the radar, do my thing. Nobody will ever see me. I was okay out in Vegas for a little while. I went out there with the firm determination that I was going to be a professional gambler. So to anybody that has that in their mind, let me just warn you, it's not the right business plan. <laughs> I lasted for a little while out there. And if you live in Vegas and you gamble, it will chew you up and spit you out. I remember the last time I gambled. I was at a craps table and literally within 45 minutes, I think I had blown through around $10,000. It was absolutely insane. 
and I'm walking out of the casino with this like feeling in my stomach like I'm about to throw up because that was literally like the last of our money and I was going to make some more money, right? It's easy. It's craps. It's gambling. I've got this. Until you don't. How do you how do you tell how do you tell your wife at that point that you just blew the last of the money on? So I got a job out there, uh, tried to keep it together while I was out there, and she was miserable being away from her family. I get it, and that marriage fell apart. It leaves you, it doesn't matter if it's time number one, time number two, whatever it is, it leaves you, no one goes into a marriage thinking, I'm just going to do this for a couple of years and then maybe we'll get divorced. You know, she had her journey and I had mine and mine intersected with more drugs out there. I remember I was in a very low point of us splitting up and somebody that I worked with her sister was over and was over at our place of work and we got to talking and next thing you know I've got methamphetamine in front of me methamphetamine is so loud inside of your head I don't even know how to describe the noise that happens you can't focus on anything or if you do focus on something that's all you can focus on we call it tweaking out. I've done plenty of tweaking out in my day. I traded so many pieces of my life. I've been homeless because of methamphetamine. I've been on the street because of methamphetamine. I have lost everything I own multiple times because of methamphetamine. And I kept coming back. I would go to jail while I was in Las Vegas and I would think, yeah. It's a chance to catch up on a little sleep. No big deal. I'm just here for a week or two, maybe a month. Back in 2006, I was arrested out in Utah for trafficking methamphetamine. My life came to a pretty quick halt, and I didn't want to come home because that meant facing a lot of things, but I felt the call on my heart to come home and start connecting with my family again. I wrote my mom and dad a lot of letters. My mom signed me up for this Bible study called Crossroads Prison Ministries, and, and that was good. And I was involved in a lot of really good things at that jail. I was leading a Bible study. I was doing some arts and crafts with some of the other guys, and I was making stuff to send back home to my family, send back home to my kids. Because at this point, I hadn't been a dad for five years, six years. So how do you reconnect with a kid then at that point? The only thing that I knew how to do was to just connect with them through like some of these little craft things that I would give. So I would braid things. I would just anything like that. And I just continually felt the call like to come back home and just to connect with the family. I remember... Towards the end of my sentence, I was supposed to be released on a Monday in April. And this was on Good Friday. 
So just before Easter and I got a phone call. Normally you don't get phone calls in jail, so this was a little weird, but so I get a phone call and they bring me up to the front office and I remember going up there and grabbing the phone, putting it to my ear and all I could hear was crying on the other end. And after a minute or so went by and I was able to figure out like this was my ex-wife and the mother of my children and she was calling me to let me know that our two oldest kids had been killed in a car accident. And so you go through these conversations with God during that. And I just remember having some conversations that probably didn't sound too Christian. And I want you to know that we serve a God that's bigger than those conversations. His shoulders are big enough to carry that. He knew what I was going through. He knew the pain that I felt in my heart. He knew how hard processing some of that was. And God's shoulders are always big enough. So I went home with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Didn't know how to plug in. You know, I'm coming back home. I've been gone now for seven, eight years. And so I come home and nobody knows what to do with me. Here, I'm just, I'm this anomaly who's <laughs> all of a sudden back home now. I ended up going out to Virginia because I didn't want to deal with life here. My birth mom lived in Virginia at the time, and I said, absolutely, I'll come hang out with you for a couple weeks. Well, a couple weeks turned into, uh, I don't know, a year and a half, because I just didn't want to come back. I didn't want to deal with it. And I really didn't have a support system there. I don't know how else to say, but if you're going through something right now, having that little support system around you, man, makes all the difference. I don't know how else to impress that the little investments that you will make with people along the way in your life will help get you through things. So, you know, I was out in Virginia just by myself doing my thing, not really plugged into a church community, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And I said, uh, good way to quit feeling like this is uh, covered up with a little bit of drugs. And it wasn't long in, you know, being out there in Virginia Beach and I was right back at it. The funny thing about drug addiction is when you start back up again, you don't start like you're this brand new user and, you know, just I'm going to incrementally go up now. You start back right where you left off and you are off and running. I robbed everybody and their mother, including my mother, to get more drugs during that point. My mom had this Bowflex sitting in my house, a little workout piece of equipment. And I traded that Bowflex for some crack one day. Like, who does that? Um, drug dealers robbed as many of them as I could. And then finally knew, had this feeling 
if I don't get out of town, <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> There's going to be somebody looking for me. So I got the bright idea to head all the way back to Las Vegas. It's a great place to start over, I thought. So here I am just absolutely smacked out of my brain on crack and I'm driving across the state or across the country to end up in Nevada because that's where I was going to start my life over again. Along the way, I had these great plans and ideas like I'm going to show up in Vegas and everything is going to be different. I'm going to be different. This is going to be so good this time. And it wasn't. I arrived in Vegas and probably three hours later, I had methamphetamine, people, checks, computers, whatever it was inside of that hotel room because the word got out that I was there and people were coming. I always told myself, I will never put a needle in my arm. I don't know what that is. It's like some drug addict, like code of honor. Like I'll never do this because I'm not that kind of drug addict. Let me tell you, there's no difference. I was probably in Vegas for about six months or so running with that crowd and one thing leads to the other and I'm putting a needle inside of my arm full of meth. And at first it was to do it for fun and maybe, you know, heighten an experience. And then it becomes something that you depend on. And then it becomes something that you steal for. And then it becomes something that doesn't care I don't care who I hurt, I'm getting more, and you better watch out. I ran through Vegas, and Vegas ran through me while I was there. I piled up 53 B and C level felonies, and every time I went to jail, I just laughed and thought, eh, no big deal, catching up on some sleep. July 26th of 2010, I was arrested, thinking I'm on the way to another nap. And the police officer informed me, oh no, not this time. (laughs) No, there's going to be more this time. So then on the way to jail, and then you're in jail, and you're getting processed, and then you start processing. I really screwed some things up this time. I knew how much of a mess I had made, but the weight of it doesn't sink in until you're standing in in the judge's chambers. And then they ask you to rise. And you feel your palms are sweaty. And you know you're going, but you don't know for how long. What did I just do with my life? How did I get here? Wasn't I that kid that liked playing trombone? Wasn't I that kid that liked doing chores on the farm? So the judge sentences me to three to 10 years. And they, the way that they read it out is 36 to 120 months. And you start thinking about the months and you start thinking about birthdays, start thinking about Christmas, your parents getting older, 
you think about all the things that you're gonna miss out on, the pictures that you're not gonna be in, the shame, knowing I'm going to prison, the shame, right? It's always guilt and the shame. That's what the enemy uses to try to keep you down. Going to prison, I knew that something was gonna have to change, but I didn't have the street completely out of me yet. I knew I still wanted to try to run some things while I was in there. I had a couple hustles I could maybe do. And when you get in trouble when you're in prison, there's only one place to go and they put you in the hole. So I was sentenced to three to 10 years. And inside of that, I was sentenced to two years in the hole. The hole is, I mean, it's not dark or anything. It's dark mentally. But you're locked down 23 hours a day. My cell was six feet wide and 14 feet long. My room faced north. I got to see a green grassy hill for two years. Got to, got to see some guy out mowing the lawn every once in a while. And that was my one connection to humanity. Being in that cell, you're, there's no escaping you anymore. Wherever you go, there you are. And that's where God found me. I remember one day sitting there just thinking about the mess that I had made of everything. And I remember God saying to me as clear as I'm talking to you now, saying, are you done yet? Are you done? Because I'm here. I'm waiting for you. I just need you to turn around and take one step. Just one. Just let me know. Just one. And I remember feeling the weight of the decision that I was about to make. But I remember thinking, yes, Lord, I am so done because my best efforts at life had landed me in a box with no freedom, with no family, with no support, with no, here I am in this box with Jesus. And that's exactly where I needed to be. The rest of the time in the hole was productive. I felt God rounding off some sharp edges shall we say. There was, there was some people that were in the hole that made it very hard to live with. They would talk about their crimes, some crimes that were against children, some crimes that were against women, some crimes that were just ugly to hear about. God always provides a way. I remember somebody slipped some earplugs under my door one day. <laughs> said, here, these may help. After I was released from the hole, I had still had a couple years yet to do, and I ended up finishing my time out in, uh, it was a work camp up in northern Nevada, and we got to fight fire and pick up trash on the side of the road. Very glamorous, but you know what? When you're in prison and you get an opportunity to go outside and walk and do some like, just do that? Absolutely. That was freedom to me. The last two years that I was in, I really felt it on my heart. Like, you have to plug in 
to where you're going home to because you're going back home. You're not going to run from stuff this time. You're not going to get out. You're not going to skate. You're not going to go to Virginia. You're not going to go anywhere else. You're going to sit your butt at home and you're going to get life right this time. And part of that was starting to just communicate with some people that were already back here, really connect with some churches, connect with some people in those churches, share my story. Who am I going to work for when I get out? Like, I haven't had a real job in years. Like, who's going to hire me? I, You know, when you go to jail for a month or two, those are easy gaps to explain on a, on a resume. But we're talking, I had been removed from society now for five years and a couple of years in addiction before that. Where do you plug in? How do you plug in? Getting out of prison, I knew that I had laid groundwork, I guess. I felt so strongly about just reaching out to the people and establishing relationships in order for me to land to that. I That was just the ownership part of me getting out. One of the things that I tried to do before I got out, I realized I was a little heavy. I had gotten my weight was up to about 270. <laughs> and somebody on the yard there just expressed to me, they said, oh man, you know, you're big as a house, but uh, man, you're going to run out of breath in like two seconds. Like you can, uh, you're not running. And so I started running. I thought that would be just a perfect opportunity to shed a little weight and uh, just look trim and fit for when I came back home. Running became an escape while I was in prison. I started running August 1st of 2014. 270 pounds, not knowing what to do. Had these old Nike shoes that I got from the prison yard. I mean, no moisture wicking material. That stuff doesn't exist there. This is bare bones basic running. But I ran a half mile a day, three to four times a week. And then the next week, I did it again. And then the next week, I added a little bit of distance. And I kept adding a little bit of distance. And I would be out there for a little bit longer each time. The weight started to come off. Started to feel a little better. I had no idea that the running seed that was planted in my heart would then end up being such an important part of my recovery and also my reintegration back in from prison. When I got out of prison in 2015, so now I had been running for maybe eight months, nine months. I was maybe up to running about six, seven miles at a time. There was a guy that was writing me. His name was Pete. And Pete was just a man's man and a good old boy to me. He didn't preach at me. He didn't tell me things I was doing wrong. He didn't do anything but just be encouraging and give me opportunities and believe in me and what I was doing. He knew I had the bug for running. He knew it while I was still in jail and still in prison. He knew that. And when I got out, the first thing that he gave to me was he purchased the registration for the Amway Riverbank run. I was almost mad at him for doing that because 
I had never ran 15 miles before at one time, so I absolutely, I was like, nope, can't do it. I was making excuses. But something in me, and including Pete, kept telling me, you can do this. You got this. And I went out there that day, and I did that. And I remember the sense of accomplishment and just feeling, if you just stick your mind to it, one step in front of the other, one moment at a time, you're going to get through this. You can do anything for a couple hours. And running in the community that's around running just ended up being such an important part. People were so supportive. I was able to share parts of my story, my journey with people as we were running. Running even blessed me with my wife. I met my wife in 2019 as she was entering a program through the Amway Riverbank run that I was exiting. And we both didn't want a relationship at that point, but God knew what he wanted and God knew what he was going to bring together. So I don't, while I don't run as much as I used to, I still have a love for running and the community of people around running and all of the beautiful gifts, including my wife, that running has given me. I left prison not knowing what direction I was going to go. I knew I had a passion for sharing my story and I had a passion for prison ministry and everything related to that. But because of my charges, that stopped me from going into a lot of places. So what do you do then? You improvise, you, you bloom where you're planted. First job I got was cleaning toilets at a car dealership for a guy that was writing me while I was in prison. Harvey, I love you. Thank you for being the the angel to me when I needed it. He provided a place for me to work and grow and just connect with people and really transition back into life. You can't expect somebody that's been incarcerated or homeless or addicted and is just coming out of all that to, okay, well, now it's just time to start doing regular life again. It just doesn't happen like that. It's a learning process and it's putting things back together again. For around six or seven years, I worked a couple different jobs, but I always went into each job grateful. I went into each job giving my best because at the end of the day, I believe I'm working for someone greater than just a guy named my boss. Towards the end of 2021, a friend of mine that I knew and met through running, of all things, approached me and just asked me a quick question on Facebook one day and just said, hey, I started this new job with Crossroads Prison Ministries and I keep seeing your family's name come up. Do you know these people? And I responded, absolutely. That's my uncle and aunt. I I absolutely know them. I said, and I was also a Crossroads student. And that led to a few more conversations. And long story short, in February of 2022, I started with Crossroads Prison Ministries as their donor relations manager. To say that this is anything less than a full circle or a puzzle piece moment, this to me has redeemed so many of the bad and ugly 
shameful things that I never wanted to talk about to anybody ever before. This position now is God saying, you can talk about every single one of those things because it's okay. I want people to see that I don't give up on people that are lost, that I don't give up on people that have walked away from me, that I don't give up on people that decided to get a devil tattooed on their chest, flipping you off with both hands. The good ending to that story is that shortly after I got out of prison, I couldn't stand looking at that ugly thing on my chest anymore. It repulsed me, it made me sick. The smirk, the sneer that I saw on his face, I couldn't stand looking at it anymore. And Pete, the guy who was nice enough to just say, I, I would love to have you run in this riverbank run, and who encouraged me. And he looked at me one day after we talked about this tattoo, and he said, I want to help you get it off. You go find somebody and you get that thing off, and you just let me know, and we're going to get that taken care of. So Pete... Even though you're not here today, your legacy lives on because today that devil lives no longer. I have on my chest now a beautiful representation of a cross, baptismal water, my baptism date. I got baptized while I was in prison. And it's everything that that devil isn't. And it's completely covered up because that's what the blood of Jesus does. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to share with people just the power of what, what the gospel can do in someone's life. It changed me, and my meeting with Christ changed me. My meeting with Jesus in the whole changed me. And I know that it can change you. I have seen life change in people that you would normally just want to throw away and discard. Some of the worst of the worst, and I am one of them. But I know without a doubt that my Savior has worked a miracle in so many lives, and I know he's going to work one in yours too.